Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I'm Ken Levine, your podcast host. This is episode 246. And my guest this week and next is Dave Hackle. Now, that's a name that you have probably seen many times on television, especially if you watch Wings or Frasier or Becker, especially Becker, because he's the creator and the showrunner of that series. And we'll talk a lot about Becker. Becker has a lot of fans and... uh, We'll get into that. Also, a very interesting way that he broke into the business. He broke in through game shows, and he has a hilarious Truman Capote story. Now, who among us does not have a Truman Capote story? Anyway, that's our guest this week. And next, you're going to enjoy meeting Dave Hackle right here on Hollywood and Levine. So a lot of people think that to break into Hollywood, you have to grow up in Hollywood or New York or some big city, but you grew up in a small town in Ohio. Where'd you grow up, Dave? Delaware, Ohio. It's just a little north of Columbus. Uh, Basically, it's a farm town that had a university. So Ohio Wesleyan University was there. So we were a farm town where the New York Philharmonic came to play. (laughs) <laughs> it was the only saving grace. <laughs> and what brought you out to L.A.? Uh, being out of work in Columbus. Uh, <laughs> I was working in Columbus at a at a cable company. And back then, this was the early 70s. The big thing in cable was local origination programming. So I got hired to do four hours a day of local programming for Columbus, Ohio. There is no one in Columbus, Ohio, that I didn't interview or have them teach me how to make something or cook something. <laughs> um, it was actually a great experience, but uh, once the company figured out there were more people working there than were watching, they closed it down. <laughs> so um, after having done all those wonderful shows, I figured the next step was obviously Hollywood. Um, so I moved out here and oddly enough, Hollywood didn't seem to care a great deal. So, um, I looked for work, uh, like everybody else who comes out here with stars in their eyes. So when you and, came out here, you were hoping to be like a performer. You were hoping to no, like not a performer. I, I had been producing and directing those shows and I thought, well, you know, I've got experience, so I'm sure they need me in Hollywood and yeah, that's what they needed was me. <laughs> so um, I looked for work for months and months and finally got a job at a place called the Edward E. Finch Company. And Edward E. Finch supplied uh, prizes to game shows and promotional consideration to the Merv Griffin show and stuff like that. So um, I worked there for about five years. And uh, it's one of those businesses you don't even know exists until you're working there. But all those prizes have to come from somewhere. Someone has to contact the 
company and asked them to do that. So um, I worked in an office at uh, Gower and Sunset during the day, and most nights I was behind door number three at Let's Make a Deal, had a little office there. And <laughs> my job was to uh, explain the tax consequences of their winnings to people who had only moments before been dressed as fruits and vegetables. So it was uh, it was a lovely introduction to show business. <laughs> but it paid, it paid the rent. It's interesting that it's like snowflakes, where no two snowflakes are alike. No two writers I know broke in the same way. Yeah. yeah. You just want it to be, you know, now I always think of, of the song from Hamilton. You have to be in the room where it happens. So uh, when I was doing Let's Make a Deal, it put me on the ABC lot every day. So all of a sudden you start meeting people and, uh, you know, you meet someone who's not doing a game show. You make a little inroad there, but you have to be where it's going on. And, it, you know, so there are a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of ways to get there. And so you kind of transitioned into writing for game shows. What game shows were you on? Um, well, I started, uh, I started writing uh trying to get enough credits to actually make a living as a writer. So I was working at night with a partner, um, Steve Hatman was working on a show called Split Second. And I was working at the Finch Company and our offices were next door to one another. And there was a, uh, there was a sitcom going on in that office suite also. Norman Parrish and Carol Moore. I don't know if you ever met them. I know who but, they are. Yeah. Yeah older guys who were doing a sitcom or developing one. And they we just wrote grab... it for the first year. Yeah, I remember they did. Mm -hmm. They also did like the Danny Kay show before that. So <laughs> that's um, why they're old. Yes, that's right. So at any rate, we would, we would hang out in the coffee room where all the writers would go for coffee and Steve and I would make them laugh. And then they would go back to their office and make $1,000 a week. And we would go back to our office and make 150 So we said, what's wrong with this picture? We started writing spec scripts. But in the meantime, I took jobs writing game show questions or game shows just to, again, to pay the rent. So the first one I worked on was uh, called The Cheap Show. And The Cheap Show was basically the best way to describe it. It tells you all you need to know about it. It was, everything was cheap. The prizes were cheap. The questions were cheap. The costumes were cheap. It was the brainchild of Chris Beard, one of the writers from Laughton. And uh, it was basically uh, the Hollywood Squares format. You had two celebrities. One had a joke answer. One had the real answer. And the contestant had to decide <clears throat> which was correct. And then the, it, it was cheap. So, you know, uh, a mouse ran around a wheel and whatever hole the mouse went into is the prize you got. That's, you know, you had to know Chris to understand this show, but they paid me for a season and a half, a season and a, and a season of reruns all up front. And it was the most money I'd ever seen in my life. So I was a writer. Um, I was also on the production team. So my job was to, you know, explain how the game was played to the contestants, explain how the game was played to the celebrities and do whatever. You know, I, I was the gopher and writer. 
What about Truman Capote? Now, this is a story that you've told in writing rooms. That's one of my all-time favorite stories. Tell us well, the Truman Capote story. Well, Chris, when he said he was going to do a game show, he said the thing that will make this different is we're going to have contestants that no celebrities that nobody else is going to have. And so, you know, first up was David Doyle and Rita Moreno and Brett Summers. They were all the same people that were on every game show. Right. But one one day he comes in, he said, Truman Capote is going to be on the show. Truman Capote and Jill St. John. And we thought, well, that's a little different. However, the headlines that week were Truman Capote uh, had just gone into the Betty Ford Center for drug addiction. And so I think I said to Chris, you know, that's great, Truman Capote, but is he okay? Is he going to be all right? He goes, no, <laughs> I, everything's fine. His, his people tell me he's clean as a whistle. He's dying to do this. I'm thinking he's dying to do a game show, Truman Capote. Okay. Now I'd read everything Truman Capote had ever written. I, I love his work and I, I couldn't wait to meet him. So he shows up and they say, well, Dave, you have to go tell Truman how, how the show works and show him his material. And I said, love to. So I go down to his dressing room and knock on the door and I hear his voice, unmistakable voice telling me to come in. I come in and there's Truman Capote lying on a couch in like a silk kimono of some sort. And he's <laughs> just propped up on one elbow, just sort of there. And on the, on, on the table near his couch in his dressing room was a small vial of pills and uh, about a half of a quart of vodka. And to the one side is a guy in a uh, chauffeur's hat and jacket, and he's hanging up his changes for the day. You know, you do five shows a day. Right. So he's hang hanging up the clothes. So I walk in and I introduce myself. I said, Mr. Cody, my name is Dave Hackle. I'm here to tell you, you know, what we're doing today. And he looks at me, he goes, oh, Dave. He said, my chauffeur has just been giving me such a fucking. <laughs> and I, I, I'm like. That's a good uh, intro line. <laughs> yeah. But I'm like, you know, as green as a new banana. I'm like going, uh, okay, that's nice. <laughs> now I look over at the chauffeur who looks at me and sort of shrugs his shoulders. And I never have known whether that's, that meant is this guy crazy or you do what you have to do? I didn't know. I didn't know what he was. It's a great icebreaker, whatever. It's a great, yeah. it's a great icebreaker. So, you know, Truman stays in his kimono and he stayed now on Truman. He's more on a first name basis. And I explain how the game works and he says, this will be fine. And so I leave. We go up on stage. We start the show. And we're about five minutes into the show, and you hear this. And I look over, and Truman's, Truman's done a face plant onto the desk in front of him. He's out. <laughs> so I go upstairs. As I said, Truman passed out. Now, I know enough about game shows that somebody's got to have the right answer, or you don't have a legal show. In other words, the contestant's got to make a choice. And if, if Truman had any right answers, he wasn't going to be saying them. So I go to Chris Beard and I say, we got a problem. Truman's passed out. And of course, you have to know Chris. He'd go, that's fantastic. Keep a camera on him. 
<laughs> and I said, well, that's great, Chris, but he's got some of the right answers. He goes, well, go take them away from him. And I said, I have to do this? He goes, yeah, go, just go take them. So I go in and I'm thinking, not only do I have to take the right answers away from Truman Capote, but I have to give all the right answers, hence none of the jokes, to Jill St. John. This is not why she showed up to be the straight man. So I walk in and God bless her. She says, you do whatever you need to do. I'm fine. Truman's still out. So I start shuffling the cards and giving him the thing. And he wakes up and he goes, why are you taking the answers away from me? Why are you taking the jokes away from me? And I said, because your ad libs are so terrific. He said, yeah, right. Hit the desk again. He's out. So for the rest of the afternoon, Truman was either awake or asleep, but we never, we always had a camera on him. Um, and I, I have no idea what happened after the show, whether the, we just couldn't wait to get out of there, but he eventually left. Now you have to, that was the end of the taping day, but now you have to go forward almost a year and I'm at a wedding in Westwood, not far from where you live. And a friend of mine's girlfriend was getting married and her parents had the reception in their backyard. Their next door neighbor was Jill St. John. So I'm at the reception. I look across the reception. I go, oh, Jill St. John, boy, I'm never going to forget that day. And I thought, there's no way she's going to remember me or that day or anything. I just thought to myself, boy, I'll Jill St. John. She walks over to me, puts her hands on my shoulders like, like we, she was meeting someone she served in Vietnam with and said, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> what a sweetheart. And, I, and we talked about that moment for a little bit. She said, that was the weirdest day of my life in show business. I said, well, <laughs> me too. <laughs> and that's my that's my Truman Capote story. Great story. We'll have more with Dave Hackle right after this. But first, I want to welcome our new sponsor, Dadgrass. Now, have you ever been too damn high? I mean, you're up there, Jimi Hendrix high, and you really want to lower it down to James Taylor, mellow high. Well, you can with Dadgrass. And for you younger listeners, I know your worst nightmare is turning into your parents, but I got to tell you that we had some pretty good shit in our day, and this reminds me very much of that. Dadgrass has Old school joints that are low in THC and high in CBD so that you can chill out and lighten up the old-fashioned way. It's legal. It's organic, smokable hemp that relaxes your body and mellows your mind. And it's federally legal for ages 21 and over. And it ships right to your door anywhere in the U.S. You watch the news? <laughs> you need this stuff. How can you how can you possibly watch Rachel Maddow for more than 10 minutes without running to see whether or not you have a joint? Get Dadgrass. And right now, Dadgrass is offering our listeners 20% off of your first order when you go to dadgrass.com/hollywood. Write that down, okay? dadgrass.com slash Hollywood for 20% off your first order. Once again, that's dadgrass.com slash 
Hollywood. Back with Dave Hackle. So how did you transition into sitcom writing from game shows? Well, as I, as I told you, we, uh, my partner at the time, Steve Hatman, and I started writing, working on game shows during the day and writing spec scripts at night. And first we had to find out what a spec script looked like. Uh, and we did, I think, what you did. We went down to that bookstore on Hollywood Boulevard, mm-hmm. got, some, got some scripts and looked at them and said, okay, we have to make ours look like this. And I think our first one was a Bob Newhart show. And we used that. We got an agent and they started sending it around. I think we ended up writing in those days, you could have a freelance career of some sort. So mm-hmm. we did a couple of love boats, uh, Norman Barish and Carol Moore hired us to do the people we'd met at, uh, having coffee. They hired us to do an episode of fish, the spinoff of Barney Miller. With That's Dave pretty Dota. good. A Danny Arnold yeah. show. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty good. And that was our first half hour that we did. And then, you know, the, the idea was to get on staff. That's where you could actually, you know, make some a steady paycheck. And in those days, uh, you know, you're in no position to be too picky. You just want a job. So if someone was doing an hour, we'd go, yeah, that's, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. Half hours. Yeah. Oh, that's our specialty. Sketches. Yeah, that's us. So we got a, a job to do a show called Shirley, which was an hour uh, single camera dramedy call, uh, with Shirley Jones. Uh, that lasted 13 shows. And the people who were producing that went on to do, I think, the fourth incarnation of Harper Valley PTA with Barbara Eden. Okay. And they said, do you want to come do that? And we said, you bet. That's our specialty. <laughs> <laughs> so... So we did another 13 shows and that was over. Uh, But the best thing to come from those two shows was meeting a guy, a line producer named Art McLaird. And one day we were working, I think it was on, I forget which show, maybe Shirley. And he said, what are you guys doing this afternoon? And we said, well, we have a script due tomorrow. So we're really jamming on the script. He goes, well, you'll have to do that tonight. We have a scoring session to go to. And we said, do we have to go to scoring sessions? He said, you don't have to, but you should. You, you guys are going to end up producing shows someday. you got to learn how to do this. So Art took us under his wing and took us to scoring sessions. That meant a full orchestra live. Right. And uh, he took us to editing and sound mixing and everything that we had no idea what was going on. So at the end of those two 13-show runs, we had sort of a, a master class, if you will, in producing a television show. That's yeah, like and four years at USC. It, it was wonderful, Ken. And Art, you know, I'll always be indebted to him for that because, you know, who, who's going who's gonna to do that? Um, so that's what happened. And then uh, eventually Steve and I split up. He wanted to concentrate on our shows. I think he went on to do Scarecrow and Mrs. King. I had no interest in our shows, so I put myself out there to do half hours. And I think the first one I got hired on was a version of 9 to 5 that Jimmy Comack was doing. And April Kelly was the showrunner. That was another 13 and out. Might have been 7 or 8, now that I think of it. 
But after that, April and I teamed up and started writing movies that didn't sell. Uh, April had been on the original writing staff of Mork and Mindy. Uh, and Bruce Johnson, the producer of Mork, took the job as line producer of Webster. The show had a big reputation for chewing up writers um, for reasons that you could go on for hours about. <laughs> but um, she, he asked April if she'd like to come back to Paramount and produce Webster and be the showrunner. And she said she'd heard enough to not make her want to do that. But she said, if I would do it with her, we could take the job. She just didn't want to do it alone. So a producing credit, I was thrilled. So I, that was how I got to be a showrunner on Webster. And that was, I'm sure people probably remember, that was Emmanuel Lewis, Alex Garris, and his mm -hmm. wife, Susan Clark. One third of that cast was delightful. And also only 39 inches tall. Um, enough said. Uh, anyone bigger than 39 inches tall was not so delightful. Um, I think I told you once, it was the only show I ever produced where I had to send a memo to the whole cast and crew saying, nobody's allowed to pick up the star. <laughs> <laughs> the, the problem with that phrase is that uh, there were two people in the cast who didn't think that the little guy was the star. They thought the show would be much better if he weren't in it. And that was that was day-to-day -day conflict for 29 episodes in one season. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, they were just trying to get as many done as they could in every season. So we lasted a season. Uh, and the great thing to come out of that was not only the credit, but meeting Bruce Johnson, who was not only a great line producer, but he was funny as hell and a great politician. By that, I mean watching Bruce taught me a lot about sort of navigating, working with the network and the studio and how to make things happen and get what you wanted to have happen, happen. So it was great. I don't know if you ever met Bruce. In your yeah, time. no. In fact, Bruce was the line producer of Late Line when I was directing oh. Late Line. So he was yeah. great got a chance to work with him he, he was terrific it. yeah um, you were on dear john which yeah. was a really good show that is you know one of those under the radar shows it was judd hirsch and jerry burns and it was a, a terrific cast and you worked with ed weinberger who did. is tough is very yeah. tough he had been on the mary tyler moore show and on taxi but i bet you learned an awful lot working for Ed, good and bad. Absolutely, good and bad. Um, uh, to give you an idea, um, I, I went there, Peter Noah was gonna run the show and Peter and I had been friends for many years. And Ed was there and the first day of the show, I walked in and Bob Ellison and David Lloyd were sitting on the couch waiting for that first day's meeting. Now, Bob and, and, and David had been in my living room for years. I watched all the MTM shows, you know, and I'd seen their names flash across my Mount Rushmore TV. of comedy. Yeah, Unbelievable. I was so thrilled to be there. So, and it was also Alan Kirschenbaum and Bob Stevens and I think Gina Goldman might have been there at that time. At any rate, it was the first day, and Ed was late for the meeting, which turned out to be something that was not unusual. 
And when he walked in, I'm, I'm still happy to be there. He walked in. I said, good morning. And Peter, Bob, and David all looked at me like, what have you done? <laughs> and, and Ed took a beat and sort of stared at me. And he said, uh, yeah, good morning. Let's let that do it for pleasantries this season. <laughs> this season. Yeah, yeah. this season. <laughs> and uh, that's pretty much the way it went. <laughs> Real carnival uh, atmosphere. Yeah, we had a good time. Uh, but Ed, all of us had a good time time but it was let's say challenging but i learned a lot by watching him mostly at run-throughs i watched the guy restage scenes and all of a sudden flat scenes would come alive he would he would direct basically you know during the run-through uh getting people closer together would help a scene or moving them further apart or telling an actor to take a beat or suggesting a different word I'd never seen anybody really work a run-through like that. Now, Ed was responding. I mean, he, he did it to the point where we'd have two- and three-hour run-throughs every day. Uh, so I knew that the truth lied somewhere between having that input and having too much input. Mm-hmm. But it was really interesting to watch scenes that weren't working work just because he was forcing a bit of rehearsal. You know what I mean? Well, it also saved you time in the room. You know, mm-hmm. by making a scene work, you don't go back to the office and at 11 o'clock at night start rewriting that scene. I wish that were true. <laughs> you still rewrote that scene. Yeah, you know what? Remember the days before uh, you had people with computers in the room, you'd do a, a script and they'd send it to Barbara's place? Mm-hmm. Barbara's Place was a typing service, and they would take all your notes and turn them into scripts, and then they'd send them back to you. Well, what would happen on Dear John was Barbara's Place had been instructed to not only send the first act back to us, but they'd send the first act to Ed's house. So at 12 or 1 in the morning, you'd get a phone call saying, I hate this. Here's what I want to do instead. Oh, and most of the time what he hated were the things that at six or seven at night he said this is the way i want you to do this so we'd say okay this is the way we're going to do it but then when he saw it he didn't like it so there were many three and four a.m nights on dear john um so that was both the good and the bad of ed weinberg now let's move on to wings please <laughs> you know uh and you were That's, you were there from the beginning weren't you i was i was i i got hired by uh casey angel and lee and it was me and phil zebnik got hired and they were about to do the pilot and then they postponed it if you remember yeah, i They're sure do be, yeah yeah so we couldn't uh, find a helen they couldn't find a Helen. It, they, they had a bit of casting yet to do in, in a couple areas. But um, so we sort of hung out and sort of talked about the show and talked through the show and talked about stories. Got a real jump on that uh, and didn't do the pilot until uh, the winter or spring, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I was there from the pilot through... I think I quit full-time after executive producing it 
through show 95. Uh, the guys left to do Frasier, and I did the next two years after they left, I think. And then I consulted on that show for another season before I left. So I was there for about 120 episodes, something like that. Well, I have to say, I think, and obviously I'm a little prejudiced because I worked on the show with you for a number of years. I think Wings holds up better than most sitcoms of that or any era. If you watch episodes of Wings today, and they're on the various streaming networks, you you can find it. Yeah. Those shows were damn funny. Damn good. Well, if I, I agree with you. I'm 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 proud of the work we did there. But if you remember, I think one of the reasons they hold up is they were packed with jokes. Mm-hmm. We that was a show where it was just go for the funny. We weren't making any points. We weren't making any uh, big emotional stories. You know, occasional moments here and there. But we wrote a lot of jokes. You certainly wrote a lot of jokes for that show. Um, and Eight of them from, worked. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you were there from the pilot as well. Yeah, I was. Mm-hmm. That was a hell of a writers' room that night. That was uh, Casey, Angel, and Lee, you and David. I think Glenn and Les Charles popped in uh, for a little bit. Uh, maybe David and Bob. I don't remember. I just remember being uh, awed by the company. Well, we did have a lot of fun because, you know, you're, you know, you sit down for a rewrite and it's like, okay, let's just have fun. Let's just put on our funny hats and and go for it but our office we were at paramount which is in hollywood but the bad part of hollywood (laughs) you know it's it's the south part of hollywood and uh our office was on the second floor of gower and um not the greatest neighborhood one day i remember we came into the office and there was a bullet hole in one of the windows. At your was, office or the no, wings? No, the, no, in the writing room at, uh, at Wings. There was a bullet hole. You might have left. They, they were gunning for you. You, you, you might have left. <laughs> <laughs> and also, remember, like, at 11 o'clock at night, we'd hear an ice cream truck. Yes. And we'd go, what? good humor man is driving around <laughs> at 11 o'clock at night and he would park right across the street from us and we'd look out the window and 17 people would run out to get ice cream at 11 o'clock <laughs> at night and it was clearly drug deals were being made and and this was cracky the clown <laughs> <laughs> now i remember that yeah i remember the the ice cream truck sound at 11 12 at night uh-huh it was the it was not a great neighborhood but it got worse as as the darker it got you know <laughs> right and right. I, we used to we used to hear uh, gunshots or things we thought were gunshots. I didn't mm-hmm. re- remember a bullet hole, but maybe it hit me. I don't know. Right. Right. Yeah. And so when Paramount decides to build a parking structure for employees, <laughs> where did they build it? <laughs> right across the street. <laughs> you know, right where Cracky pulls up. 
Yeah, that's why all the secretaries were so happy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There you go, part one of my two-part series with Dave Hackle. Next week, we'll get into Becker, and we'll also get into showrunning. Dave was one of the best showrunners in television, and it's a very difficult job. You know, like that guy on the old Ed Sullivan show who used to spin all of the plates? Well... That's pretty much the job of a showrunner, and Dave kept those plates spinning as well as anybody. So that's next week. Right now, our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. If you would like to email me, I will write you back, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I'm on Twitter, at Ken Levine. Also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Part two with Dave Hackle coming up next week right here on Hollywood and Levine. Thank you.